You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I'm Jim Dorasso, uh, one of the dermatologists uh, at Derm Squared, uh, as hopefully most of you know. And we're very proud of the Derms and Conditions Podcast program, which is now in its fourth season. And we have, back by popular demand, we have what I call the Sonny and Share of Dermatology. David Cohen and April Armstrong, uh, who each year give a summary of the high points of things that they've observed from this meeting. It's certainly not everything, but it's things that that they have have observed, and we have some discussion around that. We do want to thank Bristol Myers Squibb, and I do have a message. Now a message from our advertiser, Bristol-Myers Squibb. So tick two, which is Ducravacitinib, it's showtime. To learn more, visit www.sotick2hcp.com, and it's spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com, or visit us at Bristol-Myers Squibb booth. So, David, I'm going to start with you because I feel like you were put at a disadvantage this year. You normally are able to tell us the allergen of the year, and that got pulled out from under the rug. So we'll let you redeem yourself and see if we can get the ball rolling. You know, I I think it's only personal uh, opinion on that, that the allergen of the year is embargoed because we kept blowing it for the ACDS by announcing it at this meeting ahead of time, (laughs) right? And it kind of took the wind out of the sails of the Academy meeting. So I think that's why that happened. But we are still have an active allergen of the year, which is lanolin, right? And and I want to just level the playing field here because there's a lot of controversy about it. I think lanolinated products are fine to use for routine use. If you have a patient with a spongiotic or eczematous dermatitis that doesn't seem to be getting better, suspect it. Suspect it when it's on when there's dermatitis on the lips, on the eyes, in the groin, or on the lower extremities of elderly patients. Maybe think about lanolin, pull it out. I think it's going to be very hard to split the hairs on which lanolins are better than others. I don't think that works. but keep doing what you're doing and just think about them under those circumstances. So April, what f- floated your boat at th- from this meeting? Okay. <laughs> Did anything float your boat? Well, being here with the two of you is one of the, those things, uh, one I of was my favorite parts of the meeting. <laughs> yes, I know you were, um, and I gave it to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, I think, you know, um, I was very uh, excited to see uh, all the uh, data and information that's presented here. I think there were a lot of clinical pearls um, that were given, um, you know, just to start with um, an area that's near and dear to my heart, psoriasis. You know, what we see in the topical realm, for example, uh, people are getting more used to using non-steroidal topicals. Um, Tepinarov unveiled its uh, head and uh, scalp data and neck data here, showing about 85% uh, uh, improvement movement. Um, and, uh, and also what we see is, for example, topical roflumilast, um, in addition to its uh, efficacy in psoriasis being approved newly uh, for seborrheic uh, dermatitis in its foam formulation very recently. So really adding to our treatment options. Uh, we just got bimikizumab approved, so our 12th biologic for psoriasis, um, an IL-17 ANF inhibitor uh, with uh, quite unparalleled efficacy 
delicacy as we we saw fast onset and good persistence um, and in the oral realm uh, we also saw the three-year data from ducravacitinib showing uh, efficacy and safety so I think those are just uh, one bit of um, of the things uh, that kind of stood out at the meeting in addition to a number of other disease state which I'm sure we'll talk about I think it's important with the ducravacitinib with the three-year data that it's held up the same things that we've known after the one-year data, and there's really no concerns about oh, the box warning is going to be changed and because it, it doesn't really show that. David, what about from you? Yeah, so I just wanted to reiterate a couple of things that April said. I think for so long we've been um, really hamstringed by our topical therapies, particularly in psoriasis, right? We had re reiterations of superpotent topical steroids, and then they get mixed with calcipatriene. We'd have calcitriol. We didn't have any really effective topicals to work with. Now now we have two of them, right, Dupinarov and Rufumilast, and we really make some good progress there. And I'm just wondering, you know, certainly for the mild cases, those are going to be deployed early. We got the foam now for seborrheic dermatitis. Three quarters of your sebderm patients are getting clearer, almost clear in, you know, a pretty short period of time. What will happen when that moderate group, right? Will they get controlled with topicals or will people flip earlier into biologics? I think that's what I see year over year. You know, the biologics trying to come in more to the moderate side and the topicals doing better and trying to creep in there. So I think the battle is in the moderates now. But they can work together, right? Yeah. It's like even those biologics don't get everybody 100% clear all the time. So it's not always one versus the other. You bet. It's a matter of even though it may not be on label, we figure out ultimately what the patient's going going to need. So what about some other disease state errors? I think it's important with yeah. the reflumoas foam that there is data on body and scalp psoriasis, even though that's not what's in the approval. So the foam can also be used for those other disease states. But any other observations in other areas, April? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, diagno diagnostic um, tools for melanoma, we, we've seen uh, some updates. So from Dr. Laura Ferris's talk, for example, uh, we saw that our understanding of which genes actually contribute, or, or as we know, is highly associated with melanoma, uh, are, are changing with, as we uh, really refine the technology. So we actually see the removal, for example, um, of, uh, of TERT gene mutation, because it was found that this gene was, was as it turns out, also possible. Positive, uh, right, in a number of non-malignant uh, and non-melanocytic lesions. So I think we're refining our tools as we are going along, and I think that's important uh, for, for the field to know. Um, I also was uh, very intrigued by all of the discussions uh, today for actinokeratosis, something that, you know, we do as bread and butter, we treat that as derms, and uh, just, you know, important clinical pearls, you know, how to use PDT for AKs in the upper extremities, and how two sessions of PDT using ALA with blue light is very effective and if you have thick ones remember to curette them and also using occlusion can really help that as well. Yeah and, and Roger mentioned uh, for PDT you know while we effectively use polypodium leucotomus extract for protection it works so well at quenching uh, oxidative stress that you probably shouldn't use it for PDT right at least hold it for that uh, therapy. Uh, for a little while. I thought uh, an important issue that's come out over the last few months is the deployment of the American Academy of Dermatology Guidelines of Care for Atopic Dermatitis. We haven't had any since 2014 
all of them were archaic small molecule immunosuppressive therapies for systemics. We got a reiteration of a phototherapy, so there's a conditional um, uh, a recommendation to use phototherapy for AD, notwithstanding poof is not included in that. And um, we also heard, I think, from Daryl that uh, notwithstanding PUVA, ultraviolet B phototherapy is not associated with an increase in skin cancer. It's something that patients ask us about. We could use home phototherapy for people that live far away, and we could use it in the office. But important issues, I think, on the academy guidelines. One, gives us a lot of freedom to operate the way we think we should because that is evidence-based. Topicals should be used for mild to moderate disease, but they should be used as adjunctive therapy, as you just mentioned for psoriasis, Jim, um, it, with the biologics and JAK inhibitors for AD. And the guidelines are specific. It says any of those topical therapies can be used adjunctively. It is agnostic to the type of th uh, topical therapy. And there were strong recommendations for using biologics as first-line therapy. Right now, we have dupilumab and trelokinumab. And there were strong recommendations for the FDA-approved JAK inhibitors, abracitinib and upatacitinib. But a little bit of a surprise, right? Baricitinib got a strong recommendation for AD, even though there was not an FDA approval on that. And the reason I thought that was so important to call out is many of your patients who are using baricitinib for alopecia areata also have comorbid atopic dermatitis. And you're going to get sort of the backing of your guidelines for treating your AD and your AA with those with with that acceptance yeah. in the guidelines. I do want to point out that there's the recent approval of tralokinumab for the adolescent group now yeah, too, which it had point. it had only only been for adults. One of the caveats that's there is I think we get so much into do they need drug A or drug B, but the background of knowing what's going on with the patient, the comorbidities, and all the steps that you do to decide this is the best way to go with that particular agent are really what you need to do first and follow the patients clinically. Just don't worry about laboratory tests when they come up with the Janus kinase inhibitors. Any thoughts from you, April? Yeah, um, you know, uh, speaking of guidelines uh, that David uh, so eloquently put with regards to the AD guideline, I think something that we need as a field in the U.S. is probably update in guidelines for uh, chronic urticaria. Yeah. Um, the latest one that we, we're, you know, referencing a lot is actually the European guidelines. And uh, and I think we're bringing more awareness and bringing the treatment of patients with a chronic spontaneous urticaria to our, back to our wheelhouse, I would say. Um, so I think in this conference, we learned that, you know, we want to make sure that the patients have trialed up to four times the dose of second-generation antihistamines, and then following that can transition to omalizumab, and we have exciting medications in the pipelines, including dupilumab being studied for chronic spontaneous urticaria, as well as oral remibrutinib, which is a BTK inhibitor uh, for CSU. So I suspect that, you know, as we look forward, I anticipate that these new therapies will really help our patients with CSU uh, that we see in our, in, in our clinics. So I'm going to take a pause before I come back to each each of you to do the home stretch with your concluding remarks. Let's pause for a message from our advertiser, Bristol-Myers Squibb. So tick to Ducravacitinib, 
We're in the middle of showtime. To learn more, visit www.sotik2hcp.com, spell www.sotyktuhcp.com, or visit us at the Bristol Myers Squibb booth or certainly can go to the website. So let me ask each of you to give your final parting statements. But before we do that, don't forget we have some other therapies on the way, like anti-IL-31, nemalizumab for perigonodularis and atopic dermatitis. We have OX-40, OX-40 ligand inhibitors, another pathway, a different pathway for atopic dermatitis. And all this information is right on your doorstep. But ladies first, April, we'll go to you first to conclude. Gosh, you know, it was, it was so hard to try to pick things for highlights because there were just so many great pearls, both in medical as well as aesthetic dermatology. Um, I would say that um, uh, augmented intelligence or artificial intelligence is becoming way of life, especially for, uh, for, for many of us. And I think... Um, it's, I, I think it's not good enough yet for kind of image recognition. So we're not repla we're not replaceable for sure. It can aid us, um, not replace us. At least I don't think in the, in the very near future, but we want to consider using it for making our office operations more efficient, such as generating appeal letters, um, writing love notes for, to our loved ones. And, uh, um, so I think there is, uh, a potentially a place, uh, in terms of thinking how to, make that work for us instead of uh, potentially have the robots take over. Well, we certainly want to make sure when it's being used in publications that there's disclosure that it's being used and what actual platforms being used because we want to make sure we can get the due diligence on that. David? Yeah, a couple of points. Uh, one is the uh, issue of urticaria. You know, dermatologists see more urticaria than any other specialty, yet we make up a tiny fraction of those that deploy the most effective therapy right now, which is omeluzumab. With the advent of therapies, I think we'll feel more comfortable using, right, like perhaps dupilumab or rembibrutinib, we could sort of take back this uh, disease state and really treat it the way we ought to instead of sending it away. Their, their hives are a cutaneous manifestation of this histamine release. A couple of other things, I mean, I think you know, the, the constant improvement in the therapies are making our lives a lot easier. We're, we're seeing now IL-17, secukinumab approved for hydradenitis suppurativa. I think a much better option than we had with adalimumab, in my opinion. And maybe we're going to see even uh, further advances with perhaps bimikizumab in the future. Right, and then just we need to take care of ourselves, right? Uh, we heard Brett Coldiron talking about surgery and ergonomics, but when you're sitting in front of a computer screen all day long, just mulling over uh, patient information with your back to the patient, let's be a little cognizant of that as well and take care of yourself. We heard about how prior authorizations are just exhausting us and, um, and really making it difficult for some practitioners to even consider using the best therapy for their patients, right? So we need continued improvement in all of those areas. So I want to thank both of you. And one more final announcement. And now a message from our advertiser, Bristol Myers Squibb. So tick two to Gravacitinib. It's showtime. 
And this will conclude our Derms and Conditions podcast. To learn more, visit www.sotik2hcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com, or visit us at the Bristol Myers Squibb booth. You can certainly go to the website. Just one tip off on the podcast about urticaria. We will have one actually come up with Jason Hawks from California who does a great job reviewing urticaria and even current use of omalizumab. So thank you very much. Enjoy your lunch and we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D.com. Podcast at dermsquared.com.